Kia ora, everybody. Let's read today's, let's read today's uh, verses from John 10, verse 11 to 16. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This is the word of the Lord. So these words coming to us today from John 10 are coming at a very dramatic point in the story, in the middle of some hot action. You see, Jesus has just shown the people what he's like through his actions. And now he's at the point in the unfolding drama where there's a bit of required telling, as we like to say in the English classroom, some exposition. He's demonstrated his character, and now he needs to describe it. This very strained moment, I want to sort of build it up for you as a bit of a picture. It's a very strange audience that he's speaking these words to. Let me quickly give you a rundown of what's happened in John 9. Picture, if you will, a hot evening in Judea. And over here with long robes and long beards and long pointed fingers, we have the Pharisees. And they are upset and angered. They're aggressive. And they're annoyed because Jesus said, even though you have seeing eyes, you've got blind hearts. And they're frustrated with Jesus. He's just broken some rules. He's just healed somebody on the Sabbath. Over on this side, the Pharisees seem to be looking at somebody. And this is a man with joy all over his face and a little bit of mud. He has just been healed and he's received his sight. But he's just been kicked out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. And everything in his life has turned upside down by this man called Jesus. And then all around are 12 unusual looking people. You've got some people who look a little bit ragtag, ragamuffin misfitting, a little bit like the congregation I see in front of me today. And these 12 men are curious as to what has just happened. You see, Matthew was writing a prayer manual, and he never, ever in all of his documentation had anything in there about spitting on the ground, making a little bit of mud, and smearing it on a blind man's face. Peter is right there flexing, getting ready to do that the next time he prays for somebody. They're a curious bunch. And so Jesus has to do a little bit of work to help these three groups in their different questions. Maybe you relate to these three questions as well that I will put up there soon. So the Pharisees who have just watched Jesus heal on the Sabbath, they're looking on and with their pointed fingers and frustrated minds, they've got this big question. Jesus, you don't seem to fit with what I've been taught. You seem to break the rules I have for God. Are you really God? 
And then there's the healed man. Jesus, you've just touched me, changed my life, opened my heart up, and I can see. And you've healed me, but now I'm having to figure out what to do with my ways, my lifestyle, my friends, my family. I no longer fit in. I've seen, God, that you are powerful. But are you personal? Can I trust you with all of this? Are you really good? And then there are the disciples. And as I look around, Peter is picking his nose. Jesus, the more I watch, the more I see that you are who you say you are. I believe that you're God, and I can see that you're good. And if you're God, and if you're good, what do I do now? Three questions. Are you God? If you're God, are you good? If you are God and you are good, what do I do now? So the first question from the Pharisees, Jesus, are you really God? And I've got to do a bit of work here. So by proclaiming to be a good shepherd, Jesus is quite obviously saying he is God. Uh, for the next few minutes, I'll explain by unpacking a bunch of the Old Testament uh, and just building up to this colossal moment. PE teachers call it mass force summation. And Josiah will tell you that a great punch comes not from the fingertips, not from the wrist, but all the way from the ground up. And so let me build this up and, and help you understand what an epic slap this is from Jesus. So firstly, throughout Israel's history, God reveals that his nature to, in, to Israel in so many ways is a creator, a father, a priest, a king. And, but one of the key depictions is that of the shepherd. So by Jesus saying, I am the, bold, I am the, I am the good shepherd, it's a really bold claim. And not only does his speech uh, about the hired hands um, come as a big slap to the, to the Pharisees. These hired hands just let the wolf devour whoever they want. So it's exposing the Pharisees as the bad, she as the bad shepherds. But this revelation that Jesus is God, is, is they cannot make up their mind what is more upsetting. So let me run through some of the scriptures that builds up to this colossal smack. Uh, as early as Genesis 48, 15, the patriarch Jacob describes Yahweh as the God who has been my shepherd all my life until this day. Later on, Moses, a shepherd, is used by God to lead his people, Israel, to provide the presence and protection of a shepherd. The Psalms describe it like this. Um, you led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. And at the end of his um, job there, uh, Moses himself says, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over his community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. This shepherd, this picture of kindness, protection, care. In Ezekiel, he announces this, As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. This beautiful picture of God as a shepherd to the flock of Israel is just a part of their national identity. And in an agricultural world, it's something very simple to understand. Um, true story. Uh, many of you have probably heard of this, um, but I, I think it would have been around about 1990. Did, did anyone hear who won the calf riding competition uh, in the Waimati Rodeo? For the... Under 12s, it was me, right? <laughs> so, $7 prize. I say that to give you a little bit of my credentials 
and trustworthiness as a rural man, right? But I've seen a little bit of sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. So it's a simple picture to understand. And back in those days, it's important to understand that the shepherds remained with the flock. They led the sheep. Not like today where we have shepherds who drive the sheep with dogs. Back then, the shepherd would lead the sheep using their voice. And so that's an important image to understand, especially for those of you who are like, sweet, I know how to work with sheep. Get out your piece of pipe. (laughs) That's not quite the same. Okay, Isaiah 40 verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So Jeremiah, again, is alight with his imagery. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. I hope you're starting to get the picture. Uh, For Jesus to use this shepherding language to the Pharisees, it's a claim of his identity as God, and as well as that, a rebuke towards them as leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel weren't like the shepherd God had called them to be. In Hosea 37, God says, I myself will be their shepherd, promising something beautiful to come. This is largely what Jesus is referring to here, God's frustration and disappointment that Israel's priests and leaders and rabbis weren't laying down their life for the sheep, as he mentions. They are acting like hired men who are just in it for their own gain. And as soon as there is trouble, they are out of there. So they would have been so familiar with this Old Testament image of a shepherd that it answers their question quite clearly, are you really God? Now, they didn't love that answer, right? That upset them. And from that point, there's this awful tension that builds throughout the, the Gospels of Uh, of John. And so it also explains why he's just healed a man on the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So so again, this passage helps to establish Jesus's godness. But what does it reveal to us about his goodness? What is he like, this shepherd? And I think that's what we can look at when we go back and look at chapter 9 and see Jesus's actions as he heals a blind man. See, this blind man had been healed, but almost straight away his life has turned upside down. He's been thrown out of the synagogue, which was his connection to his family structure, his society, everything. And Jesus has a habit of turning our lives upside down. I don't know if that relates to you. You might be weighing up right now whether you can truly trust God with all of your life. And I want to explore that a little bit. So some of us, we don't really struggle with his existence. We, we know there is a God. We just don't often like what we see. And we're happy to believe we're not quite sure how to follow fully. We might believe in God. We just might not think he likes us. We might believe in God. We might just not know how much he cares. We might believe in God. We just might find him a little boring. And the lifestyle that he calls us to may be too restrictive on our wants and desires. Jesus, are you really good? And so I would say this, though. Everybody seems to claim to be a good shepherd, don't they? All of our political leaders, philosophical leaders, internet leaders, ideologies, they all offer us leadership and protection and a way to the promised land. They all promise justice and some sort of salvation, but none of them can deliver. 
even the algorithms on my phone make sure that I get led in certain ways that my choices are nudged. You know, the one time I click on a, a stupid thing that's advertised on AliExpress, that thing just pops up and follows me around the internet forever. The suggested videos that come my way all play to my desires. As they say, a great way to waste an hour is to spend five minutes watching your reels. Um, we've got so many things that are always trying to lead us. So what does Jesus offer that's different? So when we read John 9, we see the pictures of this. And I would encourage you, if you want to know what Jesus is like, just look at him throughout the Gospels. It's beautiful. So we read John 9, we find out that he's good. We get to see what sort of shepherd he is. He's a shepherd who seeks out his sheep. Okay, so from John 9, when Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. How much attention do you think this man was paying to Jesus at this point? Probably not a lot. The man was blind, and it wasn't like the man had done anything to get Jesus' attention. And it wasn't like Jesus was trying to impress him. Now, the man couldn't see, but Jesus saw the man. Jesus sees the blind man, even when the blind doesn't see him. Jesus seeks his sheep, even when they aren't seeking him. My story is Jesus sought me, even when I wasn't seeking him. And that is the beautiful grace of the Gospels. So on this day, Jesus notices another of the outcasts, another of the broken, another of the sheep who's been missed by the leaders of their day. The Old Testament had already painted this picture about the promised Messiah, Ezekiel 34 again. I will seek what was lost. I will bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen what was sick. So Jesus heals him. It's an outrageous scene. As I said, he spits in the dirt. He makes it into mud. He rubs it in the guy's eyes, tells him to wash, and the man is healed. Imagine being the blind man that day. Imagine what it would have sounded like. Crowds and voices, and arguing. And the sorts of things they were arguing were actually pretty horrific. Did this man sin? And is that why he's blind? Or, or, or the other option, is it because his parents sinned and he's blind because of that? So this man's sitting there, I imagine, on this hot day maybe, feels the coolness of Jesus' shadow as he steps up to him and he wonders, what will this man say to me that will be different? And he waits, and a silence gathers, and he realizes everyone's listening and watching. And then he hears the man clear his throat. <coughs> and he thinks, oh no. Oh no, I've had this before. There's a sinking feeling. I wonder how many times this man's been spat on before. Jesus is a good shepherd. In this moment, it's not the spit of disgust, but instead it's the touch of healing and compassion. Folks, how God does not spit on us, no matter how many times we spit at him. Instead, our God stops, he reaches down, he touches us so that the eyes of our heart are open. He's the good shepherd. Unlike the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those hired hands who ran away from the sheep, this man is one of God's lost sheep. 
a sheep that is not of his sheepfold. And so Jesus gathers him up. Jesus is always out there looking and searching for people who aren't already in the kingdom of God. And he longs to see them to come, know, come to know him. He is a good shepherd. And do you know what the Pharisees did in response to this beautiful miracle? They filled this atmosphere with arguments and accusations. And they quarreled and complained. So you've got to contrast the great love and compassion that's described here. You've got to listen to the peace that a good shepherd brings. And then you've got to listen to the confusing mess that the bad shepherds of their culture brought. That's the same today. Everywhere you turn on almost every issue, you'll find raging arguments, blame, fear, confusion, accusation, and anger. You have progressive ideologies clashing with conservative ideologies, each claiming with more intensity than ever to know the way, the truth, and the life in regards to the social reforms and justice and the economy and human flourishing. But no political ideology is a good shepherd. Well, the good shepherds of our culture might be economic or commercial, where we are battered and pushed towards owning more unnecessary things. Your possessions and your wealth are not a good shepherd. And I think that's why so many of us feel lost and alienated and lonely and anxious. Listen to the heart of a God who loves you, who longs for every lost sheep to know and trust him, who wants all to live a life of blessing and peace. Friends, there's only one good shepherd you can trust. And then the question of Jesus, are you good? I want to look perhaps at the text that tells us the most about what God is like as a shepherd. And this is a song written by King David. David was a famous shepherd. He lived amongst the sheep, living what I can only dream of as the greatest teenage life ever, looking after his sheep, playing on his harp, using his slingshot near the sheep but not at the sheep, I'm just sure, fighting off bears and tigers and lions and cheetahs and stuff. He was out there and had a great time. Psalm 78 says he chose chose David as servant and took him from the sheep pens. And he brought him to be the shepherd of of his people, Jacob, of Israel's inheritance. And so I think David has a pretty good idea of what a shepherd is like. And David himself wrote this beautiful psalm. And I think this psalm reveals more fully the goodness of the good shepherd. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. And I've spent the last few weeks in preparation for the sermon pausing and reflecting when I remember, uh, on the psalm and just having it playing in my mind and thinking it through. It is so lovely. So I want to kind of be like a bit of a biblical DJ here, spin Psalm 23, and compare it a wee bit to what we get in John 10. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other verses, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But I quite like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because most of us get this backwards. And we say, my wants are my shepherd, 
I shall not Jesus. Um, <laughs> so often the trap. So if Jesus is your shepherd, your, your deepest desires will be met. And if your desires are your shepherd, you'll never be satisfied. So quite simply, we let Jesus be our shepherd. He's good. Uh, if success is your shepherd, all your wants for acknowledgement, for achievement will become like demanding slave drums in your life. Folks, let Jesus be your shepherd. Let him begin to take and fulfill the shape of your heart's desires. I know someone in this church who recently described this in their own life. Tragically, their father died in their teenage years, and they felt the pressure to provide and to be the man. For them, success became everything, and they spent decades allowing the shepherd of success to lead them. As I said before, bad shepherds don't lead, they drive. And this man describes being driven towards achievement, success, and ultimately towards exhaustion. And it's been the work of God in the last few years of their life that he's ministered to his heart and allowed the good shepherd, the, the Father God, to lead them in his ways. I find this fascinating to note. The, the psalmist said, The Lord is my shepherd, all my wants are met. If success is your shepherd, what happens to your wants? You end up wanting more achievement and more success. And if riches are your shepherd, you never get there. You always want to be a bit richer. Nobody thinks they're rich. They always look to somebody who's on the next step up and thinks, I'm not there yet. If popularity is your shepherd, all you want to do is get more acclamation or more likes. Or, and while you may get more friends and more affirmation, you can end up finding yourself lonelier than ever. There's only one who's good enough to be the shepherd of our soul and to fulfill our deepest wants. And deep inside, I think we all know this. And as Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. The psalm shows us how personal Jesus gets. We can allow Jesus to direct and shape our desires so they're in the right place. Verse 2, he leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What a beautiful picture. This speaks of water and food, but also the end goal. He restores my soul. The goodness of God leads us to a place where our souls flourish, where the sparkle returns. Like the blind man, color is restored to our world. And when we turn to Jesus, our lives turn to new directions. And Jesus, uh, sorry, Psalm 23 calls this paths of righteousness. There's a journey or journeys of goodness, an adventure for his name's sake. I'm thrilled to think that I'm on an adventure, a commission as an agent for God. But verse 4, guys, is where things get really, really interesting. So far, the first three verses have talked about our Lord, the shepherd, and stated things we can know about him. For those of you who are observant grammar freaks, note that the verse speaks of God in the third person. David talks about God using the pronoun he. But in verse 4, the psalmist walks through the darkest valley, or as some translations call it, the, the valley of the shadow of death. The sheep loses his way. He wanders off the path faces death or adversary or grief or illness or cancer or unemployment or a cyclone or violence or anxiety or depression or any of the darkness that we find in this world. And it's here that David no longer speaks about God. He speaks to God. He becomes you. I love this. I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me. 
And where does God do this? Where does God prepare a table for us? In the presence of our enemies. In the presence of the valley of the shadow of death. In the presence of adversity or grief or illness or any of the darkness that's around. You prepare a table for us. Folks, he's such a good shepherd. He's such a good shepherd. And so the psalm finishes with such a beautiful reflection. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. There's abundant care and provision and a personal caring touch under God's leadership. Psalm 10, Psalm, sorry, John 10, Psalm 23. Each of these great passages reveal a shepherd who will lead us through dark valleys and into a place of blessing. The beautiful thing that we read in John 10 and also here in Psalms is that Jesus says, I am a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And what I I won't do today, but what I do ask you to look at is Psalm 22, which comes before Psalm 23. And in this, it depicts very graphically a God who is pierced for our transgressions, whose hands and feet are pierced, who dies on our behalf. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So anyway, maybe you're like the blind man. Maybe your life's been touched. But at the same time, you're now facing one of life's deep, dark valleys. Are you feeling like you're in a valley? Are you struggling to hear the voice of Jesus? Are you struggling with the idea that God isn't as good as he says? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He tells us we can hear him. He tells us in John 10 when the sheep, uh, when, the, when the wolf attacks, that he's there. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The wolf is trying all the time, to scatter his sheep. And one of the things that I really felt this morning as we worshipped is that it can be hard and tough sometimes to hear the voice of God, and then the thing that we don't want to do is gather with his flock. We, we want to scatter. We want to figure it out by ourselves and go to a small corner of the farm and lick our wounds and hope for the best. That is the worst place to be if there's a wolf around. Don't go out there by yourself. Folks, for some of you, things will get tough week in, week out. Things will get tough. Please stay with the flock. Please stick together. Like, this is not a cult. There's complete freedom. Do do what you like, but for your own soul's safety. Don't, don't, when you're in your pursuit of God, remember that Jesus brings his flock together and the wolf drives them apart. And maybe um, this morning, as I said, maybe you're struggling to hear the voice of Jesus. Maybe you're struggling with the idea that maybe God isn't as good as he says. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He tells us that we can hear his voice. So this morning, I think for many of you, God is saying, trust you wherever you are. Trust God. Facing, uh, if you're facing the most abundant provisions or the darkest valleys, God is saying, trust me. And I think to us as a church is, We consider this opportunity for the building. God is saying, trust me. Trust me wherever I lead. So at the start of this, I said there were three groups. said there were the Pharisees over there. And then there were the the bad shepherds. And then over there, we had the blind man. And what about the third group in the story? What about these 12 men looking on with fascination? The story of these disciples is amazing. And for the sake of time, let's just follow one of them. The nose picker. Let's just look at Peter. Let's cut a year or two down the track uh, after this particular John 10 sermon. It's the lakeside. 
I love the story. I read it and I just found my heart just so warmed with the reality and humanity of this. Uh, Jesus just calls out to his disciples and they figure out as they come in after a particularly rough night's fishing, a particularly hard night's fishing where they've caught nothing. Jesus said, hey, put your nets over the other side. And I imagine being a fisherman and somebody yelling from the shore at me some fishing advice. These guys must have been pretty humble, but they did it. And the guys catch 153 large fish. And I just love so much that this is recorded there because do you know what 153 means in biblical numerology? Neither do I. But, <laughs> but John is so excited about the huge catch and every fisherman knows this, that if he was telling the story, he just can't help but include the detail that there is 153 large fish. I bet that particular boast, um, just, I imagine it, Bill. I imagine if he told the story in a few years, it might be 173. Um, anyway, 153 large fish. Anyway, Peter recognizes that it's Jesus. He plunges into the water, keen as mustard as he always is, goes to him, and Jesus said, bring me a few fish. So Peter, again, runs back to the boat, and this is hilarious, and even though they had struggled to get the boat, uh, to get the net in, Peter hauls the entire net over to Jesus, who probably just raises his eyes and gets on with cooking them. You see, Peter actually feels a great sense of shame. And I think that's part of why he's trying to impress Jesus so much. He's returned to his fishing after being a disciple. Things didn't go so well for Peter at the end of um, the story. Let me tell you what happened a little bit. Um, where are we? Oh, when Jesus was arrested, Peter had been asked if he'd been with Jesus. And despite all his previous brags and boasts about how he would never deny Jesus, Peter does deny Jesus. And it wasn't even to anyone scary or tough or intimidating or powerful. It was to a very young person who was actually a servant and a girl. And so Peter denies Jesus not just once, but twice, three times. It is ultimate humiliation for him and here beside the fire crouches God in human flesh who has risen from the dead and he's totally at peace and he's cooking them dinner and so I love the story the Bible tells us the three disciples say very little as together they enjoy the warmth of their friend's company and the fire and finally Jesus asks Peter Peter do you love me more than all of this and I think this is just the sort of question you can feel. It's a question he's asking of Peter's very heart. And now, looking at Peter with the eyes of a good shepherd, he asks this penetrating question and waits. And Peter's response is pain. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. How does Jesus respond to this? Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus asks a second time, do you love me? And Peter again says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus again answers, look after my sheep. And he asks a third time, Peter, do you love me? And by this stage, Peter is a mess. 
Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus once again says, feed my sheep. This conversation restores Peter. Three times he denied him. Three times Jesus commissions him. This conversation marks him so much. Later on, Peter becomes an apostle to the early church. And I believe that burning inside of Peter for the rest of his days was this fire beside the lake and the conversation that went with it and the good shepherd who spoke to him. In his later years, as an older man with a warm body but a soft heart, he writes these beautiful words in 1 Peter 2 verse 25, For you all were all like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The fire beside the lake burning in his soul. What a beautiful image. What was Peter's darkest valley became a call from God to become his greatest strength. Uh, later on, in 1 Peter 5 verse 2, he passes on his version, passes on his version of this fireside conversation. It's his challenge, his widow to the leaders of the church. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not, lo- lo- not sorry, not lording it over those who entrusted, who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Jesus is the good shepherd. He longs to shepherd his sheep through the hard times of this world. He longs to keep us safe against an enemy and an age that would kill us, steal from us, and destroy us. He longs to lead us into his kingdom, and he also invites us to do the same for others. He invites us to love the outsider and to see the blind and to help the blind see, to comfort the brokenhearted, to feed the hungry, to bind up the lame, to defend the weak, to bless the poor. He does this to us and then he asks us to do it with us. Church, do you love him? If you love him, help others know that Jesus is a good shepherd. Think of the blind man. Think of the woman at the well. Think of Lazarus. Think of the millions of broken people all throughout church history, throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts, but throughout our own world and throughout your life who have discovered Jesus as the good shepherd. Join God in this beautiful work. 